Welcome to the Focus and Chill podcast, where we discuss productivity tactics that work for neurodiverse individuals. Every episode, we interview guests with lived experience of neurodiversity who also have a solid productivity and habit game, and pass the learnings on to you, our wise and benevolent audience. We're your hosts, Jeremy and Joey. I'm Joey, and I coach creatives to get moving on their most ambitious projects through the power of solid habits and strong focus. I'm also a perpetual student of psychology and perpetually on a quest to a one-armed chin-up. And I'm Jeremy, a neurospicy software developer turned startup founder, building the Focus Bear app to help people with ADHD and autism thrive at work. My cool party trick is leaving parties early so I can get to sleep in time for my two hour long morning routine. The Focus and Chill podcast is brought to you by Focus Bear, a habit and productivity app that makes healthy habits and deep work the path of least resistance. If you have a tendency to check emails or scroll through Instagram first thing in the morning, but long to develop a meditation and exercise habit first thing, Focus Bear can help you. The app blocks distractions on all your devices and guides you through your habits one at a time. Throughout the day, Focus Bear assists you to stay in deep work by blocking websites and apps that are unrelated to your chosen focus mode. Life's not all about work though. You'll be prompted to take regular breaks to rest your eyes and stretch your muscles. At the end of the day, Focus Bear helps you switch off. Work-related apps get hidden so you can unwind and sleep well. Check out the app by going to focusbear.io. Welcome to episode number 37 of the Focus and Chill podcast. Our guest today is Deborah Chance. Deborah is a certified yoga therapist and author of From the Boxing Ring to the Ashram, Wisdom for Mind, Body and Spirit. Before dedicating herself to writing and therapy, she worked high-pressure jobs as a PR and marketing strategist for multinationals. Welcome to the show, Deborah. Hello. It is so nice to be here with you. Yeah, likewise. Let's begin by talking about your journey with neurodiversity. When did you realize you weren't neurotypical? Well, first of all, I've never been diagnosed. So this is just self-diagnosis. And I would say from the time I was very young, I never felt typical <laughs> as I progressed in the holistic health field and doing all the studying that I've done, I have diagnosed myself differently. And I would say that I always felt I had attention deficits with some hyperactivity. And at the same time, I am also the kind of person who can zone out and almost pass out like this. I cannot watch a movie, you know, the, you know, I can go to the greatest movie on earth and I'll be sleeping in a matter of minutes because the lights are out and I'm in a comfortable seat. I just, I just cannot watch a movie like that. The only way I can watch a movie is I get up and move around and turn it on pause and replay. I can't go to movies. Um, the same thing when, when I, the what's scary is if I drive a car for more than an hour and if I'm alone, my brain will just kind of shut out or shut off. It, it can be very scary. I recently did three and a half drives in California from San Diego to and from someplace in the desert. And fortunately, I picked up people who needed a ride both directions. And that kept me talking. It kept my mind active. It kept me completely alert. When I worked in the workplace, if I was just sitting at my computer, you know, I'd, I'd be out. I had to constantly get up and move. Yep. I can completely relate. I've fallen asleep in quite a few movies and driving is a, a problem for me on my own. That's, Here's um... something, something really embarrassing. When I was, well, first of all, when I went to college, I did go to the student clinic and they, uh, they gave me Ritalin. And when I told my mother what they gave me, she told me that's really bad for you. You should not take it. But the reason why I went to the doctor in the university was because I had one-on-one -on -one study with a professor where we're sitting right next to each other talking and doing work. I could not stay awake with that. Hmm. And again, that was, again, it was embarrassing. It was, it was insulting to him. I tried so hard. 
yeah, that that would have been a, a difficult situation. Was he a particularly boring professor? Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I also had other professors that would keep me, you know, you know, I, I would be waiting for their next word. Hmm. So yes, of course, it, I'm sure it was his vocal level and everything hmm. about. Yeah, I, I think that has happened to me from time to time with people who have a bit of a monotonous voice. I've definitely fallen asleep in university lectures. It's a bit embarrassing. And did you end up taking the, the Ritalin or did you find other ways to, to deal with it? So I, I did take the Ritalin in the beginning. Hmm. I found it did to me is it kept me awake and alert maybe until four or five o'clock in the afternoon. And then I was out. I also want to mention also in college, I don't drink. I never drink alcohol and one of or smoke marijuana. And one of the reasons why I avoid all those drugs is they knock me out. Mm-hmm. And so I, I remember in college when we would go drinking, if we went to happy hour, by the time we got back at six o'clock, I was ready to go to bed for the night. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't fun to party with. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny because it, alcohol is a depressant and it seems to have that effect on me as well. That I've been out with friends and have there was one time where I ended up needing to go to sleep in a nightclub. <laughs> now I just avoid alcohol for that reason. But maybe there's something about that. Do you... Do you find with the the sleep, do you normally sleep quite well in the evening? No, I am the kind of a person that needs very little sleep. Hmm. And in fact, the drive that I was telling you to and from San Diego, the guys that I drove back from San Diego, at one point they said, do you mind if we sleep for a little bit in the car because we only got five hours of sleep the night before? And so I was quiet, you know, for half an hour to let them sleep. But I'm thinking five hours is normal for me. If I get five hours, that's what I need. I fall asleep very early, but I can wake up. Sometimes I wake up at 1230, not PM, but, you know, just after midnight. And I feel completely refreshed. I feel completely alert. And I try to go back to bed. I do stay in bed, but five hours is really all I need. And I have a high energy level, but I keep myself at a high energy level Hmm. without caffeine, I may say, because that is also a drug. I take zero drugs. One of the chapters in my book, From the Boxing Ring to the Ashram, is about living a pure, clean lifestyle. And for me, that means no drugs. And I do consider caffeine a drug because I used it as a drug because I needed it. When I was in the workplace, I would only have one cup of coffee, but I would sip it throughout the day. It was like giving myself a drip to keep me alert throughout the day. So I know it's a drug and I self-medicated. Yeah. And it's a very socially acceptable drug. Especially, well, there are many socially acceptable drugs. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it, it's something I'd love for you to elaborate on what you do instead, because that for many people that probably sounds crazy operating without caffeine. I also don't take caffeine, and, but I, I'd love to hear your tactics for boosting energy because I can often have an, a mid afternoon slump. I think that's often when people have another cup of coffee to keep them going. What do you do instead? I use my physical energy. I think it is essential to, you know, get up and move or even breath work. There are, as a yoga therapist, I use a lot of breathing techniques. Some breathing techniques are beautiful to relax you and to boost the parasympathetic system. There are other breathing techniques, which I do every day, which are more energizing. They're typically really good to do first thing in the morning, but you can do them whenever you need that boost of energy. Therefore, breath work, I consider a beautiful type of a drug. And in reality, all the different forms of yoga, there are 
or eight different branches of yoga, and all the different forms of yoga, for the most part, do affect the brain in positive ways. And so you can give yourself your own dose of natural medicine rather than relying on drugs. And I realize that coffee and, you know, whether it be wine or other drugs, <laughs> I realize they may be considered natural because they are from plant sources. But it's much more beautiful when you rely on your own body to create those natural drugs. Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely with you. So with the the type of breath work that would energize you, is it the 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 quick intake of breath? Is it pranayama? Is that what it's called? Well, pranayama is the is just the term for breath work. Right. And within pranayama, there are many different styles. Um, I can, if you want, I can show you one that that I do. It is one of the chapters. Another one of the chapters in my book is about lighting your digestive fire which is called Agni, A-G-N-I, from an Ayurvedic standpoint. From an Ayurvedic standpoint, digestion and the digestive fire rule your entire physical and emotional well-being. Mm -hmm. And there are two breathing exercises that I do every day that help to light that digestive fire. And they also boost your thyroid. They, uh, again, they, they, they heat up your body and they wake you up. And one of them, because we're talking about digestive fire, one of them is called the bellows breath. And so the bellow, most of us in modern day don't have bellows anymore. Uh -huh. Bellow is what you use to stoke your chimney fire or to stoke your bonfire mm. with oxygen. And so you can basically recreate the motion of a bellows like this by taking the fists to your hips, your elbows are out and you inhale and exhale through your nose, but with powerful breaths. So traditionally you go like this with your arms, but I'm going to go up and down and I'm going to try to do it loud so you can hear. I do it typically about 40 times. And when you do it, you will notice that it's not only a breathing exercise, but it's also physically, it's boosting the circulation. Mm. I also have had all my life sluggish circulation, you know, where my fingers and toes would get cold or numb. So when you do exercises like this, it's a great way to get the circulation flowing. And of course, it also flows to your brain. Amazing. I'm going to have to try this because I also have Raynaud's syndrome when my hands go numb. But that's really interesting. I, I haven't done it like that. I've I've done it Wim Hof breathing where it's a little bit of that very sharp intakes of breath. I find it slightly uncomfortable because he also recommends breath holds and that makes me feel a little bit panicked. But do you do it mainly the bellows breathing? It's just in, out, one second, in, one second, out sort of thing for 40 times? Equal inhalation and exhalation. I mm. do it fairly rapidly. There's another version, another pranayama technique called Kapalbhati, which is very similar. And you can add many different things to the Kapalbhati. The breathing is similar to what we just did, and I can show it. But as I mentioned, you can add many different elements to it. I'm also, I also teach Kundalini yoga. And one of the very common methods of Kapalbhati in Kundalini is with the arms like this. And my thumbs are kind of going in my fingers. I'm sorry, thumbs going in kind of and up and my fingers in the elbows are locked and it's similar. And what I tell people is I imagine that I'm being punched in the belly. Hmm. So it's an automatic exhalation. And the inhalation is automatic. So again, it's like you're being punched in the belly, forceful exhalation through the nose, automatic inhalation through the nose. And again, this with the arms like this in a V, in the Kundalini tradition, it's called ego eradicator. To boost mm. that digestive fire, one of the things that I love doing, and I did it in one of my yoga classes last night, 
is you can be lying on your back and you lower and raise your legs or you crisscross your legs. So it's core work and you do the breath of fire with that. Mm, I love that. This feeds in really well with the type of work projects you're concentrating on because you basically teach people how to do these practices. Is that a lot of what you do as well as being an author? So you've there's the book, which I now want to have a read of. It sounds like it's got some really powerful practices. Do you want to tell the audience a bit more about what you're doing right now and also your future plans? Sure. Well, first, I just want to mention that I'm 65 years old. And from the time I was about 16, I worked in marketing communications. I worked for newspapers, for radio stations, for television stations, for newspapers and magazines. And then I got into the corporate marketing communications world and I did things on a global level. I was working all over. And to talk about neurodivergency for just a second, when I would interview people, if I saw that they had been wait staff, like servers, it, food service, that was a very positive to me because that meant to me that they could multitask. And I've always been a multitasker because it's hard for me to stay focused, you know? <laughs> and so that was beneficial because we had to always be juggling so many things. But I traveled the world. I worked very long hours, um, 80 hours a week for corporate clients that I didn't necessarily believe in their products or services. So then I decided to give it up. I opened up my own consultancy and I was committed to only represent clients and services that I felt were going to make a positive transformation in the community. And while I was doing that, that was when I got much more involved professionally in the yogic world. And then it, three years, it took three years to get my yoga therapy certification. And I have never stopped learning more holistic modalities. And I also spend a great deal of time trying to share what I have learned with others. And as a yoga therapist, traditionally, you work one-on-one -on -one with people. So that's great. I get to make a difference in one person's life. I really want to help more than one person at a time. <laughs> one of the things that I love doing is workshops and retreats. I have this weekend, I have a bone health workshop in Austin, and I'm also leading a retreat at my home mini retreat center in Texas. And I'm also offering virtual options for three different workshops, because then I can affect more than one person at a time. And in reality, that was the whole idea behind the book that I wrote from the boxing ring to the ashram. I wanted as many people to learn from my teachers. I spent my whole life I, I love being a traveler. I love traveling all over the world. And I would never trade that experience for anything. But it took me a very long time and money to take off work and to travel, even though I'm like a backpacker. So I do it on the cheap, but it still takes time and money. And I loved that. I would never um, redo it. But for other people, they can save their time and they can save their money by just reading my book. Mm. And, um, and they basically will learn the life lessons from a dozen of my gurus around the world. And all the life lessons that I share are enjoyable, accessible, free things, free F R E E <laughs> free things that you can do in 10 minutes a day or less like the breathing exercises we just did. I love it. The title, were you a boxer yourself or was that one of the travels that you went to? So everybody asks me that question. I was not a boxer. One of my gurus was a boxer. However, I was a boxing promoter. <laughs> okay. Again, you know, I talk about how I always promoted products and services I didn't believe in <laughs> and I always felt that boxing was a violent sport. It is. I have to tell you, I loved promoting the boxing and I loved watching the boxing matches. But 
irreparable harm is done too often. And the boxer in my book was a female world-class boxer. And she's one of the most, you know, peaceful, positive people I know in this world. But she has, she suffered many traumatic brain injuries and she has dementia pugilistica. So her cognitive abilities have been harmed. She spent a lot of time at a brain center to get herself from here to here, but she will never be back to where she was before. Hmm. Yeah, it's a really hot topic in Australia right now because one of the sports that people play here, Australian rules, there's a lot of head blows that happen and similar issues around early onset dementia. It's it will be interesting to to hear how she's dealt with it in the book. Yeah, I was gonna say I'm about to cry just thinking about it. And again, seeing, you know, how I was a boxing promoter. And I also want to mention that the client that I rep that I represented was a beer company, you know, so they're teaching you to drink beer and watch boxing. Well, I'm sorry, it to me just is not healthy and that just does not work. And there are not, in my opinion, enough safety precautions within the boxing industry to prevent the traumatic brain injuries. And, you know, it's, we celebrate, not we, but, you know, our communities, the boxing fanatics and aficionados, they celebrate knockouts. Mm. But what is a knockout? A serious concussion, basically, isn't it? Yes. Hmm. Yeah, not good. Let's move on to when you're when you're not working. What are your hobbies these days? Do you still travel a bit? I sure do. In fact, I was just talking to somebody today because I just came back. Can't even remember what day. Monday. <laughs> I just came back Monday from. Uh, well, pretty much I've been traveling for since the middle of July, and I spent five weeks working in Costa Rica. I work all over the world. I love that. I seek out opportunities to work all over the world. I've worked in India, in Italy, in Belize, Mexico, Costa Rica, and Nicaragua. And so I just came back from working uh, for five weeks in Costa Rica, which again, it's like if, if, if I'm working somewhere else, yeah, it's work, but it's not. I'm not working 80 hours a week. I have a cushy job and and I'm in wonderful surroundings with wonderful people. So I, I was there and then I came back for just a few days and then I was in Utah in the United States, which is in the West, and I was doing book promotions and leading my therapeutic workshops. I came back for a couple of days and I'm really talking only a couple of days. And then I flew out to California to the desert for a major yoga festival and I was also promoting my book there as well so those are work but again I don't feel like it's work I feel as if they are my passions and I feel as if they are nourishing my soul I I love traveling and um, I love I, I my my college degree was actually in social anthropology. And so as a social anthropology student, of course, you can't stay in your university classroom, you have to travel all over, and you have to integrate into different societies and cultures. And to some respects, my book from the boxing ring to the ashram reflects that because one chapter takes place in Mexico, another where these are all, of course, where I was. Another takes place in Ecuador, where I lived on two different occasions. Many take place in India. So, um, but the way that I look at my travels is I'm not a tourist. You know, I'm an, I'm an adventurer, an explorer, I'm working, I'm sharing, I'm volunteering. And um I'm trying to live with the locals and learn from the locals. That sounds like a much more meaningful experience than just going there with a tour company and busing from city to city. It sounds like you really get to see deep and meaningful experiences while you're there. 
It, that's my preference. <laughs> you know, a lot of people just want to go to a five-star hotel and resort and just sip a margarita by the pool. And again, you know, I can't sip a margarita. And if I lie down by the pool, chances are I'll be sleeping in a couple minutes. So <laughs> I do yoga by on the wall. I do yoga on the sand. I hike forever. It sounds wonderful. How do you, I'm going to ask about your morning routine and I'm curious about how, what your morning routine looks like when you're at home, but also when you're traveling, because that's a way that I often find it challenging when I'm in a different environment. So tell us about that. My routine is actually fairly much the same wherever I am. The only difference is the time of sunrise. I love being in Central America where sunrise is about 4.30 in the morning. I don't like, I used to live when I was much younger. I lived in Chicago where sometimes sunrise isn't until eight o'clock in the morning. And I like to get up 4.30 in the morning <laughs> and I like to begin my day. I One of the things that I tell my students oftentimes is you can do a lot of your personal practice while you're still in bed so that it's relaxing, but it's also doing a lot for you. So I typically will do yin and restorative yoga in my bed and I do it while I'm doing my japa meditation. And japa meditation is when you have beads and you repeat a mantra and every time you repeat the mantra, you move one of the beads. So my strands of japa beads, um, the mala, the mala is what the beads are. The mala are in the Eastern tradition, they're 108. Whereas in Catholicism, the rosary is 54. So it's the same concept. You've got 54 or 108, which is double. So I stay in bed 4.30 to 5.30 doing my yin and restorative yoga while I'm doing my japa meditation, repeating my mantra. And then I do breath work. You mentioned pranayama. I do six different breathing techniques. Ideally, before I get out of bed, sometimes it's as I'm letting my water boil and I drink lemon ginger tea. I make my own fresh lemon ginger tea from fresh ginger root and lemon. And the reason why is it is very good for digestion. And again, you know, one of you know one of the chapters in my book is all about digestion. And so I have my lemon ginger tea on an empty stomach, of course. And then after that, I will do my rounds of sun salutation, which is the physical, mm -hmm. more physical component of yoga. I do 12 rounds, which means 24, because each round is two. So I do 24 sun salutations and then I'll have my breakfast and my breakfast because of what I need from an Ayurvedic perspective, everyone is different. I always need hot liquids. So just like I make my lemon ginger tea, I then make myself a hot drink with cacao and adaptogens and what I lead first love yourself workshops. In fact, I'm doing one virtually this weekend. And I traditionally incorporate a cacao ceremony in it. And I tell people that pure cacao, and I buy mine in Central America, <laughs> and pure cacao has a lot of protein, it has a lot of magnesium, and it's a heart opener. And it does not have caffeine. There, It has a different type of chemical or whatever. I believe it's called, I don't know, something bromine, can't remember, but it's not caffeine. So your body processes it differently. It does feel like a stimulant to me, but again, I can process it much better than caffeine. Hmm. Yeah, I've found that. I used to have quite a bit of cocoa, not the, the special refined uh, high quality type that you had just from the supermarket. And it would make me bounce from wall to wall. But I think your version is probably a, a lot purer and cleaner. Well, the other thing I want to mention about pure cacao versus like a chocolate bar that you get at the store is aside from the fact that the cacao level and origin isn't that great, 
the traditional chocolate bars you get are loaded with sugar. And so sugar is also a drug. <laughs> it is a drug. We have to admit it. Hmm. Yeah, I, I was just doing the Dutch cocoa that you not not with sugar in it, but I definitely know what you mean that sugar is a, another dimension which probably isn't great for us. That rapid rise compared to what you're doing, where it sounds like it, it takes some time in order to to do the the yin and restorative yoga and the japa meditation and those other things, but it probably results in a, a better quality of concentration than if you were to wake up at say 8 a.m. and scull some coffee and then get right into things. Also, as you know, I am a multitasker and that's why I multitask and I do my japa as I do my yin and my and my restorative. So that mm -hmm. way I get two done in at, at the same time. Mm. I'll have to try that. I, I like having the beads to help with the meditation. That sounds really nice. Is it something that you did during your corporate career as well? Or when did you start doing this type of yoga? I got into yoga before I really knew the word yoga. <laughs> I started with breath work and with mindfulness meditation when I was a teen. And the reason why was from the time I was an adolescent, I had digestive disorders that were diagnosed. I went to a gastroenterologist. So I had, you know, I, I'm all about getting an accurate diagnosis from a specialist. And then you can, that's your starting point. You have to have an accurate diagnosis from, you know, ideally the best specialist around. So I went to a very good gastroenterologist. I got my diagnosis when I was, I don't know, maybe 13 years old. And I knew it wasn't, it wasn't like I had a food allergy or I had Crohn's or I had celiac. It was stress-related. So I knew that I had to find something to alleviate the stress. And I just kind of found on my own breath work. And I also talking to people. I also lived in Mexico when I was 16 and, you know, back and forth. And in Mexico, it's very common to use herbs. So I started drinking chamomile tea you know, when I was very young to soothe my digestion. So again, from a digestive disorder standpoint, I got into herbs and breath work and mindfulness when I was very young. And I also was diagnosed when I was an adolescent, probably around the same time with a musculoskeletal spinal deviation. So I had chronic back pain you know, if I tried to stand or sit up and I was a kid, you know, kids aren't supposed to have back pain and I would try to sit or stand and I would have very severe pain. Fortunately, again, I went to, you know, the best um, orthopedic surgeon, you know, in our area. And he said, you know, hey, you know, you've got this malformation, you know, you were born with it. There's nothing really wrong with it but you need to work on straightening out your spine through postural work and you need to strengthen the core. And again, one of the chapters in my book is all about back pain because chronic back pain, well, first of all, in the United States, one in five people suffer from chronic pain and chronic back pain is the leading culprit of the chronic pain. And unfortunately in our society, it is far too common that doctors prescribe opioids. And last year in the United States alone, we had more than 100,000 opioid related deaths. Fortunately, when I was a kid, my doctor, first of all, my gastroenterologist did not prescribe me any medicine. He could have given me, you know, like, I don't even know what, you know, the drugs that relax you, you know, no. You know, he just, you know, he didn't do any of that. But my orthopedic surgeon, he gave me exercises to, to straighten out my spine. He also said things like obviously sleep on a hard bed. And he told me to do things to strengthen my core muscles, because if your core is weak, then 
the back muscles have to overcompensate. Hmm. That so really again, lucky not... to have had those specialists help in that way because it, it sounds unusual that they would go almost in a non-medical model approach. Exactly. I feel blessed that I had those issues so young in my life because I learned holistic approaches from the time I was an adolescent. And again, it was from top ranking medical specialists. Hmm. Yeah, that's fantastic. And it's great to hear that you were doing them throughout your whole career because what you're doing now may feel seem overwhelming to people, the the link that the the routine that you have, but it's something that has helped you to be productive throughout your whole career, basically. Was there any difference between what you do now and when you were working 80, 80 hour weeks? Definitely. Well, first of all, I can enjoy it much more now and I can take <laughs> my time. You know, there, there's a a uh, not an expression I can't think of what you call it a, a not a slogan can't think of what you call it but there's a expression that when do you need yoga or meditation when you have the least amount of time for it mm. you know so the person that feels so taxed and so pulled in so many directions and that feels they can't take time out to do anything those are the people that most need it. And that's why in my book, I focus on things that you can do in 10 minutes a day or less. So just as an example, and this is in my book, but I had a very high pressure business, new business presentation once in the workplace and hundreds of manpower hours go into these business presentations and the win can represent 10, 20, $30 million worth of business. You know, it's not like, okay, I sold a pair of beads for $20. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the, the amount of pressure is extremely intense. And we were practicing right before the potential client came. And the woman in charge was being so disrespectful. And I just thought she was denigrating everyone. And I just wanted to wring her neck. We had a little 10 minute bio break or snack break. I went to my office, I closed the door and I did breath work. When I came out of that little breath work break, I wanted to hug her. Hmm. It was a huge difference in how I responded. And that's what life is all about. We can't change what happens in the world, but we can change how we respond. Mm, absolutely. And that feeds in really well in terms of tactics that you have for optimizing productivity. It sounds like one of them is doing breath work to connect with colleagues more. I need to try that sometimes. I don't know that I quite want to ring their necks, but I can feel very frustrated. So I'll have to try that. And you mentioned the bellow breathing as well. Is that a tactic that you would use if your energy levels are flagging during the day? Absolutely. There's another technique that I want to mention, which is in my book, which may seem counterintuitive, but if you think about it, it makes sense. So one of the chapters in my book is based on a United States Air Force Army chaplain rabbi. And she is one of the first female rabbis in the U.S. Air Force. And as a chaplain, she works with people of all religion or no religion. And she encourages everyone, regardless of their religious or faith-based preferences, she encourages everyone to honor the Sabbath. And I talk a lot about the Sabbath from her perspective, but I also talk about another author whose name is Tiffany, Tiffany Schlein. She wrote the book 24 slash six. So instead of 24 seven, it's 24 six. And Tiffany is a very highly acclaimed filmmaker. And she talks about one of the ways that she becomes more productive is by tuning out once a week. And I personally do a digital disconnect once a week. 
I've been doing it for about five years. I also don't drive a car because driving cars is very stress inducing. And so once I actually try not to drive a car three times a week, (laughs) but once a week, I try to turn off all of my devices. I don't have, you know, any TVs. I don't even have record or music players because I like silence. But it is very difficult for me to turn off my phone because my phone is my alarm. Well, I don't use an alarm clock, but it's my timer. It's my it's my clock. It's my um, my music. It, it's my everything. And that is what's the hardest for me. But what I do love about it is when I turn, when I disconnect from all devices once a week, when I finally log back into Instagram, for example, and I have a, I have a large following on Instagram. And so it can take me forever to get through my messages. And I try to post every day. It sucks up so much time. But when I disconnect once a week and when I go back in, I'm shocked that I can really catch up in just five minutes. So during the day, I may, again, it sucks up so much of my time. We think we have to go to it all the time. When I was in California for this yoga retreat or the yoga festival that I just came back from, I never went to Instagram for four days. And again, I caught up maybe in 10 minutes instead of five. And I had preset all my 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 uploads. So I wasn't inactive. You know, I had all those pre-programmed to go, but I didn't have to tune in. Hmm. Yeah, that that's so important. I I think I need to do a, a Sabbath. I do half a day right now. And even that is a change for me because I used to work 24, well, not 24-7, but I would work seven days per week. And I noticed that it wasn't really having positive impacts, that the productivity starts to decline. Whereas, like you said, when I take a day off, I feel much better the next day and more energized. I'm glad you brought that up. And it really feeds into... Congratulations for doing what you do. Thank you. Still a lot more to improve, but I really do think taking breaks is important. So let's take a break right now. Hello there. This is Joey. I'm excited to tell you about a project I run where I help imaginative people just like you breathe life into their creative dreams, like writing that book or performing that stand-up comedy set. I know the first step can be daunting. I've been there many times and have helped many people on a similar journey. If you've wondered how to bring those ideas swimming around in your head to life, get in touch. We'll shrink the intimidating dragon off a goal into a cute little lizard of an achievable daily habit that you can do every day to get started and stay moving. Click on the link in the show description to get in touch. All right, we're back from our break. And let's now talk about a habit that you've removed from your life in the past and how you managed to do that. I would say it was an addiction. I would say I was a carboholic. Mm. I've been vegetarian most of my life. And I lived as a vegetarian before I knew any vegetarians. There were no vegetarian food options. So I would eat junk food and I would stuff myself or fill myself with carbs. And fortunately, I gave all that up. Well, that, that's quite a change. So you, you no longer do any carbs or you just do, say, brown rice and quinoa and some of the higher quality carbs? I started by pretty much eliminating all the white stuff, you know, like white mm-hmm. flour, white rice. But then I stepped it up. I try to be grain free. I do eat the carbs such as all the legumes. So a lot, I do have a lot of carbs, but from legumes, but I try to be grain free. Mm, Amazing. Well, that sounds like a real transformation. Yeah. Mm, Yeah. It's probably hard eating out, is it? There's probably not many places that won't do some kind of carb in it. Correct. And that's why when I travel, I always take protein powder with me. And a lot of times I will take protein bars. I also follow a low glycemic diet because I have to from ins- for an insulin resistance standpoint. So I always take um, low glycemic protein bars and protein powder. So all I need is water and I can, I, I won't starve. Hmm. Well, yeah, well, I concur with what you were saying about the addiction side of it, because I, I think that can be, especially with refined sugar and flour. I definitely went through a phase myself where was very hard for me to not 
have those kind of foods. So well done on, on conquering that. Now, how do you switch off in the evening? I So I prescribe to an Ayurvedic lifestyle, not only an Ayurvedic diet, but an Ayurvedic lifestyle. And one of the concepts with Ayurvedic lifestyle is your digestive fire is strongest between 10 and 2. So the heaviest meals should be between 10 and 2. You should never eat late at night. I typically try not to eat anything heavy beyond 530 if I'm going to eat dinner, if I have to eat dinner at seven, I try to have just a very, very light food um, or a hot drink. Um, and then I I avoid bright lights. What drives me crazy is going to like a supermarket at night with those bright lights. You know, it's, it's just mm. horrendous for, for your system. So I use candles. I use salt lamps. And then I take a long bath with essential oils and with um, Epsom salt. And I also do more meditation and that relaxes me. And I go to bed early. Sounds amazing. I love the, the bath and the meditation. You have a bath every night? When I'm at home, I do. Yeah. <laughs> when I travel, I usually don't. So last, last year I worked three months in Italy and I never had a tub. So, so I went for three months without it. And I have to tell you, whenever I come back from those long extended trips, what I love the most about returning home is taking a bath. Yeah, I bet. Well, I just moved into a house with a bathtub and I haven't used it. So you've inspired me that maybe this weekend I'll have a long bath. And if I can add, you know, I told you about multitasking. Another thing that I do when I'm in my bath and I repeat my mantras, but I also do acupressure, reflexology. So I'm trained in both Vedic from India and traditional reflexology. So I do that like on my hands, on my face and on my feet as I'm in my warm bath, repeating mantras. Love it. In terms of resources you'd recommend, it, it sounds like I mean, one of the major ones is your book because you've really distilled a lot of the wisdom that you picked up. So I'm going to put that at the top. And you also mentioned 24-6 by Tiffany. I didn't catch her last name. Was it Shlain? S-H-L-A-I-N. And actually in my book, I have all of my gurus and all of their websites, you know, so I've got all of their websites and then I also have, my book has, I believe, about 150 footnotes, and many of them are direct links to either research studies or to different different people that I think they should follow. Hmm. Amazing. So it's really a, a treasure trove of knowledge. Again, I wanted to share. <laughs> I wanted to share what I could. Hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. And then before the show, when I told you about this question, you you wanted to highlight the the beads as well as a, a sensory toy. Like I love that one as something that looks nice and is also very useful. So the concept of japa, which is the meditation of with a mantra, with the mala, which is the beads, is it works all of your senses if you have essential oils. I always have essential oils on me, but you can light a, a candle with scents or incense or sage or Palo Santo, which are outstanding. So then it's your sense of smell. You can look at the beads and you have your sense of vision. You feel it every time you move the bead around. So it's your sense of touch. And you are repeating the mantra, even, even if it's not out loud, even if it's a whisper, you can still hear yourself. And so that's the sense of sound. So the only thing I missed was sense of, of taste. And if you're sipping an herbal tea, then you get that as well. <laughs> <laughs> but probably don't chew on the, on the mala beats. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. You mentioned Instagram as a way that people often connect with you. Is that the best place for people to find you online? Whatever they prefer. I am on Facebook and I'm on Instagram. I'm on YouTube. I'm on LinkedIn. 
Um, everywhere, it's my name, Deborah, D-E-B-O-R-A-H, Charnes, C-H-A-R-N-E-S. But separately, I have two additional Facebook pages. One is the, T-H-E, Namaste, N-A-M-A-S-T-E, and then Council, C-O-U-N-S-E-L. So there's the Namaste Council, which is all about health, holistic well-being, and then there's the right, as in you write a letter, or you write a book, the right council. And that is my book and writing side, because again, I have, I have divergencies in what I do and they all come through. They come through me and out of me. And they're uh-huh. all, they're all interconnected. I love it. Deborah. it's been great having you on the show. Do you have any final words or asks for the audience? Yes. I truly do believe that every person has the ability to live their healthiest and their happiest. It doesn't mean that they are going to erase some type of an impediment, but they can ease, as opposed to erase, they can ease everything that is bothering them. And again, it doesn't have to be difficult. It's all about setting your mind to it choosing to make a difference and finding what's right for you. And in my book, I have a 40 day tracker where you can kind of keep track of different things that you're doing. And the concept is if I have 12 different chapters, maybe you focus on chapter chapter six for now. And maybe six months down the road, you're going to focus on chapter two. And maybe five years down the road, you're ready to focus on chapter 12. For example, me turning off, going 24-6, it took several years of my Ayurvedic doctor telling me to do it before I finally did. So it has to be when you are ready to make that change. Mm, 100% agree. Thanks a lot for coming on the show, Deborah. We'll wrap the show with that. Well, it's been a wonderful pleasure to be here with you. Mm, Likewise. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Focus and Chill podcast. To listen to other episodes, jump onto podcast.focusbear.io. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or you know someone who'd be a good fit, email us at team at focusbear.io. Otherwise, stay focused, stay chilled, and peace out.